I've noticed a very strange thing about myself having moved here to the suburbs of Boston. In the suburbs, and especially in Concord, I notice now when I see an African-American person on the street. I notice in a way I never noticed in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which is 70% African-American. I notice in a way I never noticed on the subway in Boston, for instance. I notice because it is, frankly, noticeable. And when I notice, I wonder about the person I see. I wonder what work or pleasure has brought that person to Concord. I wonder if that person lives here and what his or her life is like. And every time I notice, I get a knot in my stomach for having noticed. Shouldn't I be beyond that already? Don't we live in a world where race is not supposed to make a difference? What in me has trouble getting beyond my own white lens? African Americans are not the only folks who stand out to me in Concord. I notice Asians, Latinos, and other people of color. I also notice gay and lesbian couples and interracial couples. Compared to Boston, it's really very white and very straight out here in Concord. There are reasons. I saw you all sit up a little more stiffly there. There are reasons for that, and to deny that we live in a segregated area would be foolish. Yet, I don't want to put too much value on the segregation. There is no malice that keeps our streets populated mostly with white people. There are no laws that prohibit people of color from living or working here. But there are attitudes, attitudes that go back to the founding of Concord in 1635 that perpetuate its traditions. The townspeople of Concord have expressed their values over the years, resulting in the town looking and feeling much like it does. There are things that the ministers and the members of First Parish in Concord that we have done wittingly or unwittingly for 380 years to preserve what we experience here today. Concord is how it is because we keep it so. Quite frankly, I'm surprised that things like Ferguson, Missouri, don't happen more often in the United States. I'm surprised that communities of color don't rise up all over the United States week after week, month after month, to try to put an end to the injustice and the inequality that they so often feel. Surely the fury we are seeing coming out of Ferguson, Missouri, simmers in hundreds of other communities around our country. It simmers in Philadelphia and Detroit. It simmers in Cleveland and Cincinnati. It simmers in Dallas and Chicago and Boston. Rage simmers in communities of color while many of the rest of us go on with life unaware. This rage simmers because it is out of sight, out of mind, and there are forces at work to keep us from seeing it. Segregation in the United States never ended. Just as surely as Jim Crow replaced Reconstruction to keep black people in their place, an equally rigid system 
of unspoken rules asserted themselves after the civil rights movement of the 1960s. I'm not saying that America has not made progress. It has. But it would be naive to think that the changes that people fought for 50 years ago have not been eroded, ignored, and subverted. For instance, if you are a white person shopping for a house in any city in this country, any white real estate agent can tell you which neighborhoods you should look in and which neighborhoods you should avoid. In real estate, talk about quality schools, civic pride, and the prospects of good resale values is just talk about where white people should live and where they shouldn't. Jim Crow and blatant segregation have been replaced by coded language and microaggressions. White people here this morning would be embarrassed, myself included, to think of ourselves as racist, yet we all live in a world filled with barriers to full equality. The blatant crossing of one of those barriers caused what has been simmering in Ferguson, Missouri, to explode into two weeks of violence and protest. Another thing few white Americans realize is how many people of color and African Americans in particular work very hard to keep it together when they are in wealthy or in white areas. This keeping it together requires people to be polite and articulate. It requires people of color to play by white rules. They must fit in and not make other people uncomfortable. Whether at work, shopping, on vacation, or dining out, keeping it together takes a toll. It requires a person to be hyper-aware. A similar thing is true for gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgendered people. Once these same people are back in their homes and neighborhoods, they can drop their hypervigilance. They can be more themselves. Many people of color have a sense of ease in their own neighborhoods. The slights that African Americans have to put up with are expected in white areas. In black areas, these slights are an affront. So when something shatters the relative ease of a black or mixed-race community, rage erupts as it did in Ferguson, Missouri. The confusing thing, though, about Ferguson is that it is about race, and it's about a whole lot more than race at the same time. I made a quick little list. See if any of these things showed up in your mind as you watch television this week. Ferguson has an overwhelmingly white police force armed with military-grade weapons. It is a poor suburban community from which wealthier white residents fled about a generation ago. It sits very close to the disastrously poor city of St. Louis, where the people of Ferguson consider their neighbors to be much worse off than they are. There's a real divide in Ferguson between those who have a lot to lose, homeowners, shopkeepers, professionals, and those who feel that they have lost it all already, looters, rioters, and troublemakers from Ferguson and elsewhere. People feel a frustration in Ferguson 
resulting from the disparity of having an African-American president of the United States and the same day-to-day grind in their own neighborhoods. It's as if it doesn't make a single bit of difference. As in many places in our country, there's been a steady erosion of goodwill toward the people on the part of the police. Protect and serve has been eroded to the place where too many police officers see a young black man as a potential criminal rather than as a member of the community to be protected. They start with suspicion rather than with the benefit of the doubt. I was interested to see happen exactly what I predicted last week. The news media began to tire of Ferguson, Missouri, and moved on to other tragic and sensational stories. In making this shift, I do not blame them. The news is a business that supplies consumers with a product. They have to keep things interesting, or consumers and advertisers will look elsewhere. But moving on from Ferguson does not mean that things are resolved there, just the opposite. The moving on actually causes the wound to fester, making the next eruption even worse. For all the cries of justice for Michael Brown this week, my greater concern is for the economic justice in a community that is fast losing even more hope. By the end of Labor Day weekend, America will have largely forgotten about Ferguson, Missouri, but the dynamics that caused its explosion will sit there like unlit dynamite, just like they sit like dynamite in hundreds of other communities just waiting for a match. So what do we do? What are well-meaning people who live in the Boston suburbs supposed to do about something like Ferguson, Missouri? This is an honest-to-goodness question. What are we supposed to do about the larger problems of race and economic disparity in our country? It's a beautiful day outside, and I'm pretty busy. What has Ferguson, Missouri got to do with me? The truth is that people of color cannot and should not have to end racism themselves. Gay people cannot and should not have to end homophobia themselves. Women cannot and should not have to end misogyny themselves. The poor cannot and should not have to end poverty themselves. Racism is a white problem. Just as homophobia is a straight problem, misogyny is a male problem, and poverty is a rich problem. Racism is caused, perpetuated, and reinforced by white people. White people are the ones who have to work ceaselessly to end it. How do we, the ones of us that are white, here this morning, the clear majority, what do we do with that? The only answer that I know of is that we have to be allies to people of color anywhere and everywhere we can in ways large and small. One of the best pieces of multiculturalism work I ever did was to take something called the IDI, 
the Intercultural Development Inventory. That's a mouthful for something. There's a, basically a, a test that you take. You take it online. By asking a variety of questions about race and culture, this inventory showed me a picture of myself. It showed me not only where I thought I was with regard to multiculturalism, but where I actually was. As you might imagine, the two did not exactly match up. Like most Unitarian Universalists, I thought I was much further along in this work than I actually was, humbling to say the least, let me tell you. The biggest aha moment of getting my results was to see how I was moving steadily away from a worldview where race and culture matter very little to a worldview where race and culture actually enrich everything especially if we are white. So many of us were conditioned to believe that in modern American society, race and culture should not make a difference. We were taught to be colorblind. In the world that I grew up in, everyone had the same potential. America was the great melting pot, and anyone who was willing to work hard could get ahead. This worldview still exists in American society today, with both folks on the left who fought for racial equality and with folks on the right who believe that no one should be given special treatment because of their race. All are created equal, the U.S. Constitution says. The trouble with this kind of minimization, as the Intercultural Development Inventory calls it, is that in not seeing difference, White people assume that everyone else's life is pretty much like their own, or at least should be. As in Ferguson, Missouri, we were showed this week that nothing could be further than the truth. To be an ally to people of color means that those of us who are white will not assume that our lives are or should be the norm We will move slowly but steadily from a place where we can notice and appreciate the differences in people, differences like gender, race, sexual orientation, economic standing, and the like. And rather than trying to force people to conform to our own experience, we will be much more willing to ask questions about how they see the world and about what their experience is like. And in doing this, we all will make a whole lot of mistakes. We will put our feet in our mouths over and over again, I guarantee you. We will make faulty assumptions, and we will have to apologize for those faulty assumptions. We will go out of our way to be welcoming, only to have come on too strong and have to back up with that beep, beep, beep sound. We will do so many dumb things, you and me, so many dumb things in our desire to understand other people that we will wonder why we ever chose to pursue this multiculturalism nonsense in the beginning. And in making all of these mistakes, we will show people that we are truly interested in them, and this will be our reward 
I began this sermon by telling you how I was noticing difference in Concord in a way that I hadn't other places. And the thing that saves me in this noticing, the thing that I've also noticed about myself, is that when I see the difference, what arises in me, first and foremost, is a curiosity. A simple curiosity about who that person is, about what they have in common with me, what is different than my experience. And it is that curiosity that saves me over and over again. And I trust that it can save you as well. For if we are curious about another person, truly curious, we will very easily be able to set aside our own experiences, our own prejudices, our own misconceptions, even if just for a few minutes, to meet that person face-to-face, eye-to-eye, person-to-person. That curiosity will allow us to ask those first few faltering questions allow us to really start to get to know another person and allow us to then be in relationship with him or her. I wish for you on the streets of Concord and elsewhere, in the pews of this church, in wherever your life takes you, a healthy curiosity about other people, about their lives, about the things that are similar to yours, and most especially, about the things that are different. If we do this and nothing more, we will be on the right path. Know that you do not walk that path alone. Together, we can do it. So be it. Amen.